Hello and welcome to the Miko Bits show and I'm your host Miko Bits. Uh, every week we have guests from the leading edge of DeFi, blockchain and Bitcoin and today is no exception. We have Jeffrey Liu who is founder and CEO of Zanpool. So this is a uh, really a, a low risk or uh, risk less uh, fiat uh, on-ramp. So really exciting technology and some mm -hmm. really exciting uh, numbers. So uh, what I'm going to do uh, next is uh, obviously the usual disclaimer. This video program is opinion uh, information only. It's it's not intended to be investment advice. So if you want investment advice, uh, you know, seek a professional. Uh, just a quick uh, disclosure that, you know, my fund, Gumi Cryptos Capital, is invested in uh, Zanpool. So, you know, that never really biases my show, but, you know, we definitely uh, just want to make sure everybody understands uh, that. So without uh, further ado, here's Jeffrey. Hey, Miko. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Happy absolutely. to share more about uh, our platform, our infrastructure, and, you know, um, potential synergies uh, with other guests, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, you know, I think I usually like to kind of kick off the show and talk about the news. So, you know, one of the exciting things happening in the news is, of course, the uh, Ethereum is creeping up towards the all-time high. So I uh, would love to kind of get your thoughts on this. Oh, I think uh, we are, after all, in my opinion, in a at the precipice of a raging, massive, at least 50x bull market. And wow. in very, um, in very, uh, uh, in situations like this, Ethereum has always outperformed Bitcoin, and a lot of the smaller market capitalization altcoins have also outperformed Ethereum in that sense. So, from that perspective, yes, I am hugely bullish on Bitcoin and by proxy Ethereum and pretty much any altcoin that exists out there. Amazing. That's fantastic. Well, uh, let's get right back into the content of the show. So we'd love to hear from you kind of the problem that Zanpool solves. So uh, please, please go ahead. Okay. So yeah, Zanpool started out as a simple local currency to cryptocurrency fiat gateway. It was the mechanism by which we are doing this that is relatively unique. So fiat gateways has always been a problem. I don't think I need to uh, dig too much into there, right? So most of the liquidity of cryptocurrency resides in US dollar to crypto. And that is where most um, exchanges, brokers, or whomever in the market has to settle with. Now, what the model that Zanpool takes on is Zanpool is actually a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, fiat gateway where you are directly trading with someone locally who has that crypto and is willing to provide liquidity for that. Uh, the way we do this is through a mixture of banking APIs, as well as crypto wallet and crypto exchange APIs, where people are essentially able to plug their banking APIs that we've built, their bank account, into our Zanpool network and their crypto exchange or crypto wallet into our Zanpool network, uh, whereby they essentially create crypto liquidity as well as local currency liquidity. And then our automated market maker will essentially help people on and off ramp into that liquidity. So it's sort of like Uniswap. It's very similar to Uniswap, except specific for local currency. Yeah, that's that is uh, interesting, right? Uh, you know, and just for uh, the audience's sake, uh, you know, obviously Uniswap is an automated 
market maker. And so it's really a three party transaction, right? Which is that there's people who are effectively sort of selling a token. There's someone who's buying a token, but there's also a third party that supplies additional liquidity, you know, so that makes these, uh, you know, transactions easy and, uh, you know, keep, keeps keeps the available pool of these assets, right? The thing that is, the reason why this is important is because all of Uniswap takes place through a smart contract. And that means that, you know, it, in some ways, in order to make this, uh, you know, if Alice is, is getting something from Bob, you know, you can actually kind of decouple that transaction, you know, and just have a pile of, of the assets sitting in the contract for people to use. So just to clarify, and, you know, this is not, uh, Zanpool is not a DeFi product, you know, so, but I, I guess, um, you know, why don't we tunnel up a level, right, and talk about kind of the problem the, in the most simple terms, you know, for, for the consumers. Okay. I suppose that the problem for most consumers is that if you are, say, not in a developed nation, um, if you are in Southeast Asia, if you're in South Asia, and even in um, some developed countries, right? So let's take uh, developing nations at first, right? You are in a place like Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, and you want to onboard into crypto and fiat, you're easily paying 5 10% premium over USD for that same amount of, um, for the same amount of crypto. And partially this is caused, of course, by capital controls, but a big part of it is that simply uh, what's actually happening behind the scenes is that liquidity is being routed from your currency uh, to a local market maker who takes that to an FX broker who pings that via SWIFT to an American exchange. And because of that process, because of that inefficiency in that process, there it creates a premium for most people uh, to actually be able to buy or sell these assets. Now, so the short version what, is, so the yes. short version is that uh, the problem that you solve is uh, cheaper Bitcoin. Cheaper, faster, and less custody risk Bitcoin, yes. Yeah. Okay. I and mean, crypto, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, makes makes a ton of sense. I mean, you know, I always really like to, I mean, of course, it's very important for audience members, some of whom are quite technical to kind of understand some of the intricacies of how it works. But, you know, I'm always interested to kind of simplify things in terms of like, you know, what it, you know, who's, who has the pain and, you know, what is it that they're, uh, you know, why, why is that? So, but to me, the thing that I think is, is really exciting is, are the numbers, right? So you're experiencing mm -hmm. really huge growth. So I'd love to kind of help people understand, you know, how quickly mm -hmm. this is growing and, and, you know, give us some of the numbers. Correct. So the people that actually are providing liquidity on our platform, what we call the LPs, uh, the people who are connecting their bank accounts or e-wallets and their crypto exchange wallets to the Zanpools mm -hmm. network, has been right now we are sitting at low four figures that means across the nine or ten countries where we are operating in right now uh, in each country there is at least a hundred plus of these lps providing liquidity uh, which on one hand provides a very robust infrastructure uh, where lps can go online and drop off at any time um, and people can still transact in that local currency using local payment methods that are just cheaper uh, as for actual the market taker side, the buyers and sellers, the people who buy and sell into them, we have approached over 300,000 transacting customers um, on Zanpool alone. So 
Part of that was 100% fueled by our pre-A round funding and financing, allowing us to expand and scale up very fast. Um, but I think part of that is also simply because of the infrastructure that we have built uh, being more efficient and cheap and fast. Um, so there being some organic switching from other fiat gateways like local Bitcoins, other uh, traditional peer-to-peer -peer, uh, marketplaces to Zample as well. I see. So really, like, in a sense, like a lot of these customers, early customers might have been thinking about using something like local bitcoins and, you know, came across your, your service. Is that is that a fair uh, estimation? Correct. So um, either they may have used local bitcoins or they would have gone through an FX broker, bought some U.S. dollars, pinged it to a U.S. custodian exchange. Right. Um, or they would have just simply uh, used a local exchange, which is provides crypto to crypto, but also for that one region, provides fiat to crypto as well, uh, where they would have to send them the fiat, then trade it on the platform and withdraw the fiat. Whereas for Zanpool, it's just you send a transaction into a local account. Uh, imagine just sending money to a Venmo account that we specify, and then getting the crypto pinged into your own wallet address a minute later. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, you know, what is uh, what's your uh, what's your secret? Like, how, how do you uh, you know, how do you do how do you do that? And, you know, what 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 gives you a special advantage? So, yeah, so I thought about this internally as well. And I think the main thing that our APIs and our open finance uh, capabilities, our software does is it lowers the threshold to be a liquidity peer or of cryptocurrency to local currency significantly, right? So imagine this, right? Um, imagine you're on local Bitcoins or a traditional peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. You would have to um, post some liquidity, custody it with them, then custody some uh, liquidity with another exchange. Whenever you make a trade on local Bitcoins, you have to quickly buy it back to ARP that profit. Um, and it just takes familiarity with a lot of what crypto is. Now, at first, um, we did target a lot of the LPs on these peer-to-peer -peer platforms who then part of them became LPs on Zanpool, and it is a lot more automated. So you do not have to keep liquidity on different um, exchanges or anything. You don't have to price yourself. We do the pricing for you. You don't have to uh, check if the person who sends you the money is actually the same person as the platform claims he is, because we do that compliance and KYC on your behalf. Um, you also don't have to check the amount coming in because our AP, through your API access, we can ping the crypto directly to the person you are selling it to. And then what another thing that we do is we make sure that you are hedged. So your principal position in crypto and fiat, as well as the fees that you are earning, because you are earning fees uh, for providing this liquidity are hedged. And then we will settle that with you periodically. So um, I, <laughs> I think yeah that that describes it right. So it, it's dramatically lowering the threshold. Now another thing that dramatically lowers the threshold is actually not our um, our, our own innovation at all. It was simply uh, the use of tethers or stable coins. Now imagine this right. I go to an LP and I say, hey, you have to hold Bitcoin or Ethereum and your local currency on your own balance books because that's what you're earning your fees in. Naturally, uh, they'll be like, okay, I don't really want the whole Bitcoin. But now, um, a lot of our LPs, they only provide liquidity in USDT and their local currency. So what they're seeing is that they're seeing their US dollar amounts go up 
and their local currency, for example, the Indian rupee, go up, right? And they're okay with that. That's so on, on our end, yeah, because the switching cost of crypto to crypto is so low, USD to BTC is what, five basis points, three basis points now that, you know, uh, these large exchanges exist. So yeah, I think that really was the the thing that that helped us get these liquidity peers on board, which allowed us to provide cheaper, faster, and more custodial services. So, so that really that is uh, part of the secret, I, I suppose. Yeah, I, so I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm interested to understand a bit about like, you know, the, who, what kind of yields are getting, you know, the LPs getting and like how, you know, how mm -hmm. do they, uh, who are, who are they? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the yields that people who run um, or who connect their banking and crypto infrastructure to our network are, at first, they were just peer-to-peer um, -peer traders, and we offered them a more automated, a more faster solution. So an LP, the way their compensation mechanism works is that um, for the liquidity you provide, you get anywhere between 0.25% of the transaction to 0.75% of the transaction. Now, on average, this resides around 0 0.3, 0 0.4. And uh, yeah, so let's say you facilitate a thousand uh, US dollars or let's say um, US dollars worth of crypto, then you'll get roughly 0.4% of that. I Imagine see. it, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, but I guess my question would be, um, you know, what does that, usually come out to or how you know how, how does how do you feel you know mm -hmm. what does that what does that feel like and you know I, you know what of course what makes what motivates these people to to do such a thing understand i i suppose right it's um i want to refrain from talking about yields because it's not really actually a, a fixed yield so to speak and the yield also is affected by how much liquidity you put in so let's say you only put in two thousand uh us dollars worth of crypto worth of uh, fiat and $2,000 US dollars worth of crypto, um, your yield could be very high up to 10%, right? Because the amounts that you put in, the, the amount that you put in is low. Whereas there are LPs who have seven figures uh, of liquidity, right? On the crypto side and the fiat side, and they would probably be experiencing 1.4, uh, 1.5% per month, uh, which obviously is much lower than 10%. Per month, but then, is, per month is very fast though. Yeah, it, it's it's not it's definitely not People bad. People usually talk it, it, about it, annualized. Correct, correct. So, for, from this perspective, right, um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the the yield percentage goes up and down based on the um, the amount of liquidity you put in, because that is how it's calculated, sort of, right? Um, yeah. So you put in less, your yield will be higher, likely, but you, the absolute amount that you earn is just not that much. This is, uh, I, you know, I, the thing that's interesting about emerging markets, though, is that, you know, it's always like, quote unquote, that much, you know, relative to uh, other opportunities and opportunity cost of capital, you know. So I guess right. I guess the thing that I'd love for you to do is, you know, make make a bit of a pitch, uh, you know, on my show. So, you know, let's say someone was in one of your geographies, you know, uh, you're primarily operating in Southeast Asia uh you know mm -hmm. in south asia so like you know interested to understand like you know how what would convince someone to uh do you know to join your network and and earn uh earn you know earn from joining your network um can i just preface it with a question uh, is this person familiar with crypto or is he not familiar with crypto at all uh i mean what's your sweet spot uh you know do you do both 
because I if you do both, then I, yes. I you know I'd love to hear the non-crypto version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, okay, sure, no problem. <laughs> so, so hi, uh, my name is Jeffrey, and I run a platform called Zampool. Um, given that you already know what it's like to trade on Binance C2C uh, peer-to-peer platforms, uh, you must know that there are a lot of limitations to that, whereby you have to arbitrage, you have to keep liquidity on different platforms to collect your premium or discount that you are market making for. And I just want to let you know that on Zanpool, uh, we built a system whereby you retain all the custody of your assets. It resides in your own bank account and it resides on your own crypto wallets or exchange accounts. And you're actually able to earn yield on that as well. Then they would usually say, huh, skeptical, you know, then I'd go into the, 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 the technology a bit more about how we're doing this. Um, I'd show them a UI screen of what actually is happening in the cloud. So I'd show you a, a UI screen of, let's say, a robot uh, logging into a bank account, querying the amount, querying the person who sent the money. Uh, and then people would get it. They're like, okay, okay, interesting. So you're running this sort of APIs and this thing in a cloud environment, allowing for the certainty of money having been sent, uh, the money being indeed from the sender. And then also um, our compliance tools would make sure that it's not a sanctioned entity or it uh, um, accommodates the travel rules, things like that. Yeah, interesting. So I think you've given the crypto pitch, and whereas I think yes. I asked for the non-crypto pitch, but uh, you know, I think uh, would okay, love okay. to get the I, non-crypto. I I, I... Uh, go go ahead and do the non-crypto yes. pitch now. Um, so it, it's actually uh, we, we acquire a lot of these users um, through these LPs through word of mouth, but also online posts. Um, okay, it's usually something along the lines of um, first convert your local currency into a U.S. dollar cheaply and then earn yield on that US dollar. Nice, nice. And then we take them through a pipeline. I, I couldn't pitch it to you, but uh, but that's roughly how how it works, right? Um, we usually drag them in by allowing them to convert their local currency into USD, uh, which is very, very um, attractive to a lot of people. <clears throat> and when that is done, they can either uh, keep it there or they can provide liquidity for that. This is very clever, right? Because to me, the thing that is important to understand is, you know, if you're a DeFi person, you you yes. know, you definitely uh, understand AMM, you understand Uniswap, you understand SushiSwap, yes. you know, and that this is a very powerful mechanism and people who provide Correct. liquidity to those systems earn pretty tremendous yield, right? So I think that that's, yes. that's something that I think happens, right? The thing that I think mm-hmm. is really interesting about what you're doing in the emerging market is you're effectively creating a very similar uh, arrangement, but you're doing it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, effectively, um, you know, in a, in a more uh, fiat on-ramp style, right? Which I think is very, it's very interesting to see that you're, you know, working in a, in a different way, right? It's not all just Ethereum and ERC-20, you know, it's actually fiat stuff, which I think is, is really amazing, uh, you know, but the, the, the mechanics are the same, right? Which is that the liquidity providers enable, uh, you know, effectively fiat on-ramp, right? So they enable a fiat on-ramp, you know, through the same economics as a, uh, automated market maker. Exactly. So uh, just, yeah, two, two comments on that, right? I, I would have loved to build a completely trustless uh, DeFi system. It's just because we are 
dealing with the fiat side itself, which requires, um, yeah, I, I just cannot put a lot of the banking APIs that we have built our own custom APIs for um, on a blockchain. It, it would uh, consume too much gas fees. So uh, we, we are currently running that on AWS. Um, in the future, there are ways to actually decentralize this that I have thought of. For example, um, every computer can run an EXE. Um, probably won't be that pretty, but, but uh, then they can connect their um, accounts in there as well. And then there would be a reputation system that would see which nodes uh, and LP on and off ramps stay online the longest, they would get prioritized, they would get more yield. Um, of course, that is a very long and, and, and big endeavor, but um, that's just something maybe that to think about. And uh, as for the LPs, providing this uh, liquidity, yes, totally. It's it's very similar to uh, the AMM, AMM model. Um, it's just that, you know, because of the fiat side, uh, it cannot be as, as sexy as a trustless um, on-chain solution. So do you have, I know you mentioned some, some of the numbers, but do you have kind of transaction volume numbers and, and this kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Uh, so in December and January, uh, both months, we did close to 50 mil USD worth of transaction volumes. Or to, to phrase it better, uh, the LPs of that user software have done collectively around 50 mil USD worth of transaction volumes. So uh, yeah, and and the majority of them uh, are Tether, actually. Sure, sure. That's uh, that's very exciting. Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, getting mm -hmm. to sort of your entrepreneurship, you know, what what are your sources of inspiration? You know, like how, how do you, what do you, what keeps you kind of motivated? Well, I okay. Um, I won't like name names something super like uh, cliche like Steve Jobs or you know uh, <laughs> Elon Musk. I think I mean okay, Elon Musk more than Steve Jobs for sure. Okay, but um, let's just be crypto specific for now, right? Sure. Um, I I love it when, or I get very motivated when I see um, people or teams go through adversity, go through fud, and then come out a lot stronger. Um, in crypto, uh, the people that I can think of, or or the company that I can think of, is uh, Bitfinex. So I, I was uh, a relatively early customer with them. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, so I um, they, they have experienced a hack, which I was a part of, uh, and they made me whole. And then nice. I um, experienced the, um, the part where their money, their custodian um, got, got pwned, and then somehow 800 mil was lost, and then they raised one bill overnight, uh, which, you know, was another thing. So. How, how do I put this, right? Like, I feel like Bitfinex is, has become a, 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 the whipping dog of, of crypto. A lot of people give them hate. They, they, um, they create tether FUD. Um, they keep bringing up uh, things like their hacks. Um, but I mean, each and every one of these times, they have made, I believe that they have made reciprocity to their users. Whereas if even just 5% of what they've experienced happened to any other a crypto exchange, their founder would have just exited, right? And then all of their um, creditors' money would have been lost and locked for years to come. So I I do uh, respect the, the Bitfinex team a lot for what they went through and how they keep persevering uh, despite the FUD. And personally, I, I'm just taking using them as an example, right? Like really any team that perseveres through hardship, perseveres through FUD, perseveres through um, things that are just not ideal and not planned for. Um, but then also make their customers whole and come out stronger on the other hand. Um, those kind of stories motivate me a lot. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think that that's uh, something that's necessary. I always ask for people's inspiration because, you know, it takes a, a lot of passion, dedication, you know, and obviously, you know, early stage projects tend to be, you know, ups and downs. So, you know, I think that's exciting to hear about. So uh, yeah. interested to kind of, you know, I think you already kind of did give a few shout outs, but, you know, would, would be interested to hear, you know, whether you have others, any acknowledgments, you know, people who have been helpful or people who you just, uh, you know, want to say, uh, you know, great, great job to. <laughs> I, I think, um, okay, obviously, because I am completely unbiased, I would like to thank all my investors first yeah. <laughs> for providing me with the financing to do what we do. But um, all jokes aside, I think the companies that were around um, in 2017, and persevere through 2018, 19, and 20. Uh, great, great job, right? Uh, we, we, we stuck it through like one of the most painful bear markets uh, where Bitcoin dropped. Of course, not as much as before, but you know, um, it had accumulated a lot more economic mass, right? So in this, I know that there are a lot of um, organizations or groups that operate almost nonprofit, right? Like the Bitcoin Association of Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, Bitcoin Maximalist Association and group. Um, these guys, right, they, they helped a lot of people through this, this bear market, talked them through it, right? Um, gave people, I believe, renewed vigor of why they invested in this technology in the first place. So the guys that are running communities that are really not being compensated for that, but really are just doing it for the good of the community, those guys uh, deserve all the respect and uh, thanks. Uh, you know, we should remember them when we are high and mighty, when Bitcoin is a mill and Ethereum is 50K, right? Those guys are, are the ones that you need to uh, break some bread with. Yeah, I think that it is amazing how sort of, uh, you know, e effectively thankless a lot of the build out of the core infrastructure is, you know. And to me, mm -hmm. uh, my thesis in the space is what I call open source financial infrastructure and what this really means is you know when you really think about the word infrastructure infrastructure is the type of thing where nobody notices it unless it's broken right so nobody is grateful for it nobody talks about it you know and when it doesn't do what you want then people make a huge fuss right so you know that's a pretty thankless place to be and you know so obviously it's great to hear you know you you acknowledge people who are developing in the core platform mm -hmm. consensus and layer 1 you know the ethereum <laughs> core bitcoin core and you know so many others right. so you know i think that that's a lot of hard work now i do think that they are there are financial rewards for being there you know and i think mm -hmm. that that you know it's it's not always just a pure uh you know labor of love but in some cases it is so you know i, I definitely think mm -hmm. the acknowledgement is great so the next section is what i call the pocket pick section you know which is okay. obviously outside of investment advice you know i'd love to hear you know about any projects that you think are extremely promising you know and obviously uh you know favoring smaller projects because uh, you know obviously people have heard of the big ones Okay, uh, so I guess I would say um, there are a lot of platforms or there are a lot of um, swapping mechanisms right now um, that developers and teams on Ethereum that have built on Ethereum have done, um, such as um, trustless interest, trustless loans, trustless um, swapping between digital assets. I... Personally, uh, I uh, 
I keep in touch with with all of those. Um, I, I mean, so one one thing I I sort of do have to I, I kept an eye out on sushi uh, since their hack, and I do think they've had like a great turnaround yep. of. Uh, yeah, they 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 sort of there was a redeeming arc almost of this. Um, then I would also give a shout out to some of the smaller projects on a blockchain called Zilliqa that uh, are doing some pretty interesting things. Yes, so um, tell us a bit about some... what you like about Zilliqa. Okay, um, I want to fully disclose that. Uh, their company and associated companies uh, are one of our investors in okay. the early days. Great. Uh, they have provided us a lot of support in that. Um, it's just there. How do I say this? Um, and it's, of course, not Zilliqa specific. There are a lot of um, projects right now that are working towards uh, one, they are Turing non complete. So uh, being a Turing non-complete platform and blockchain, um, it allows it to be a very good test bed for other Turing non-complete blockchains, right? Uh, these include Bitcoin. Uh, these include, I believe, Blockstacks as well. But uh, yes, so, and it has a very vibrant community. So that economic mass plus that Turing non-completeness creates a very good um, experimenting ground for other larger, more valuable blockchains. Um, I, I really appreciate that. So I do keep an eye out on that. Anything we learn from there, um, you know, repeat uh, mistakes should not be repeated. Uh, successes should be replicated. So from that perspective, right? Uh, right now, there are some projects uh, like the Pillar Protocol that builds a, um, uh, it, it's a maker DAO model, but it's built on a Turing incomplete system. So uh, a lot of that I find interesting. Uh, there's also swap protocols being created, again, on a Turing non-complete system. So these things could be, um, I think, are very interesting for the Bitcoiners and other Turing incomplete blockchain uh, developers to keep an eye out on. And my, I myself, um, have being interested in the space, will certainly do so. Yeah, so I, I suppose, um, Look out for all the, the swap platforms, the liquidity platforms, the trustless interest platforms, um, the really quote unquote DeFi thing, because I I believe that crypto in the end of the day uh, should really be peer to software to peer or peer to peer, right? Um, and ironically, the way crypto evolved was consumer to institution to consumer. But uh, with enough testing and trial and error on DeFi, uh, I do believe that one day we will have trustless finance, completely on chain, the only risk being software risk. So uh, yeah, uh, I would keep an eye out on these things. That's great. So uh, what I would love to uh, you know, get from you in, in the kind of final uh, topics, I have two final topics, but you know, one of the topics uh, is uh, what I call the big idea. So you know, uh, the big, so Steve Jobs had a big idea called personal computing, right? And I think that was a very big mm -hmm. idea. I think that uh, Elon Musk is, you know, has a big idea that's still uh, in play. But I would say that, you know, if you were to characterize his big idea, I would say that Elon Musk is largely talking about how do humans kind of operate within a world of environmental constraint, right? So, you know, obviously the electric car is related mm -hmm. to that. And then obviously the 
uh, you know, trip to Mars and establishment of a Mars human colony, a permanent human colony on Mars, you know, becomes a way of kind of potentially averting uh, you know, uh, extinction. I, I think the other thing that's interesting about uh, Elon Musk, though, is that, you know, he said that, uh, you know, what he said that, yes, it's true that being multiplanetary as a species decreases our chances of extinction. But if you really kind of go deeper, it's actually better to be optimistic than pessimistic, which I think was a, such an amazing statement by him, right? Because, uh, it, it, you can read it two different ways, right? One way you can read it is you can read it as uh, let's go to Mars because of a negative reason, right? The negative reason is, is so we don't become extinct, right? But what he's really, to me, when he says that uh, it's better to be optimistic than pessimistic is in a sense, like, he, you know, the other way of looking at it is he's saying, you know, hey, let's just go there you know like you know maybe maybe it won't turn out badly and maybe it'll turn out even better than you know and i think that what he's describing is actually just a choice it's a posture right his choice is i choose to be optimistic as opposed to choosing to be pessimistic you know so i think that's a that's a very interesting big idea so i guess you know do you have big ideas like what is your big idea like how do you uh you know uh, what's the big idea oh i i i i subscribe to uh something whereby if you want to do something big, you don't talk about it until it's inevitable. <laughs> that way you can always head yourself. Um, I, I guess I can talk about some of the uh, things I foresee happening, right? Uh, just on well, let me characterize it properly. Let yeah. me characterize it properly. Sure. I'm not saying what is the thing that you're going to do. So for example, if you went back in a mm -hmm. time machine, yes. you said, Steve Jobs, what are you going to do? Uh, it isn't mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm going to make the iPhone. Like, that's not that's not it. I'm going to make Apple the first, mm -hmm. the first trillion dollar company. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is like, what's the big idea? And, and so in other words, it's not about, you know, uh, building it, taking credit for it. It's not your thing. Mm -hmm. It's the thing, right? Which is what what is yes. what is happening that you're a part of, you know, and how do you look at the big, you know, the big picture, right? So that's that's more of what it's like. Okay. So, you know, it's it doesn't put you on the hook. Like, you know, Steve Jobs yes. could have said personal computing mm -hmm. and then he could have said, have fun making it and he could have retired, you know, or left the industry, mm -hmm. right? So what I'm saying is yes. the big idea doesn't have to be something you mm -hmm. deliver. Correct. It's just something that you are aware of, so. Of course. Okay, I, I guess I can say then uh, for me, it's peer-to-peer -peer open finance, the big idea. Uh, personally, I, I believe that um, a lot of the inefficiencies uh, or that finance needs to be a, a very frictionless uh, platform because it is the mechanism by which we allow commerce to happen. Um, we've generally agreed upon as a society that commerce um, is a good thing in, in general. And um, a lot of non-peer-to-peer finance or finance, traditional finance, finance with a ton of intermediaries involved just for simple things like transferring money uh, from one guy to another or structuring loans from a few people to uh, many people or the other way around. Uh, that all currently involves a lot of intermediaries uh, that I find inefficient. I believe that um, all of the finance will eventually, probably sooner than we expect within the next 20 years, be happening through software primarily. And of course, it is because of the uh, importance of finance, this software needs to be auditable and visible and transparent to the other participants in this system. Um, when that happens, 
I believe that a lot of industries will inherently flourish uh, simply because right now, legacy finance and non-peer-to-peer finance is being used to, or it is hinders a lot of the innovations that I see in a lot of sectors. So definitely open peer-to-peer finance. That is how um, the big idea that I wish to bring forth uh, in my lifetime. It's something that I'll dedicate my my life to, you know, and even if I can push that compass forward 0.004%, right, it will already have sped up uh, the course of what I believe to be inevitable and thus to a lot more um, productive and, and flourishing societies. That's fantastic. I, I always like to ask people this, and I think it's an important philosophical question because, you know, I think uh, viewers at home, you know, you may consider asking yourself, like, what is my big idea, right? And, you know, I think the thing that is important to try to distill is, you know, uh, the thing that is the quality of a big idea is if you get a big idea, if you're, if you're right about the big idea, then you can be wrong uh, many times about much smaller ideas, you know, and as long as you're kind of substantially right about the big idea, you know, things will work out incredibly well for you. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Steve Jobs is kind of the example that I give, you know, and obviously he had a very big uh, idea that, you know, he really had, had a lot to do with making real. So, you know, one of the fascinating things that happened in the news is, you know, we see uh, Jeff Bezos kind of stepping away from Amazon. And yeah. one of the things that's fascinating about this is he's handing the reins to the king of AWS, right? So in a sense, uh, it really is the platform, right? So AWS has yeah. become a digital platform company as opposed to kind of even an e-commerce store, an app or, you know, mm -hmm. bookstore. <laughs> Obviously, there's right. so much more uh, to it than that. Uh, so, you know, I mm -hmm. guess the thing that's fascinating to me is sort of to watch and, you know, we're, we're actually seeing a changing of the guard. I think for the big tech companies, the only founder that's sort of left standing now is uh, uh, actually is uh, Zuckerberg. So, uh, you know, I, yes. what are your thoughts about these things? I, I mean, I... There, of course, may be, you know, business continuity things happening. Um, but I, I think we should also not, um, I, I think Bezos is uh, giving away the CEO position to become the director or executive director of the board. Um, I think, I think, I, I'm not sure, don't quote me on that. Um, I, I do think that a lot of these guard changes um, are happening partially because of pressures from regulators. Um, a, a lot of these companies, they have uh, provided such good services, such cheap services that they have accumulated a huge, huge, huge network effect, right? And um, because of that, um, perhaps they are being targeted by by regulators. Um, and I suppose a, a, a change in, in leadership um, could be a sign of, of good faith that these companies will, you know, um, continuously to provide better services for their customers, uh, not just because of their position in the market, engage in behavior that may be considered as rent seeking. So I think this is uh, generally good. Um, as for Mark Zuckerberg, yeah, I mean, uh, very, very, uh, very cool platform. I used to use them as when I was younger, don't use them anymore, but of course they have divested in a lot of other platforms. And um, yeah, there in tech, there are no very, very long-term kings, right? Like the, the churn is pretty high on top. Yeah, I would absolutely. Say. So it's, uh, you know, it is always remarkable to see 
<clears throat> founders and how far how far they can go. So you know, it's exciting to see so much growth at Zanpool, and uh, you know, I really uh, look forward to the day when you've you've gone uh, as far farther than Mark Zuckerberg. So you know, it's it's been an exciting conversation. <laughs> We hope, we hope, yeah. Absolutely, and uh, you know, it's been a very fun conversation. Uh, really appreciate mm -hmm. it, and you know, people, everyone, Thank check you, out uh, Zanpool. Uh, thanks so much.